Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Welcome back to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. This is a heartwarming one. I'm a runner myself. I've never done marathon, but the Boston Marathon Day as we speak, and we talk about the marathon in 2013, the bombing, such a great event marred by that tragic bombing. I talked to two survivors at Villanova where I teach. They gave out an award earlier this year to a mother and daughter that have really gone on to do great things since their tragedy. Celeste and Sydney Corcoran. Celeste was there at the finish line watching her sister complete the race when the first bomb went off. It badly wounded both her legs. They were since amputated. It ruptured her eardrum. And then her daughter, Sydney, was also at the race, nearly bled to death after shrapnel flew into her right thigh. They've gone on to do great things. Their story is right here. It's heartwarming, it's emotional, and it's a must-listen. First, a word from Harry's Shave Club. They're changing the game with shaving. It's been one big razor company for years where they increase their prices, they get their immense profits at the expense of customers. So two ordinary guys who are fed up with getting ripped off started Harry's. Jeff and Andy, they take less profit, they sell direct to you over the internet, and they offer their blades at half the price. I use them close and comfortable shave all the time. Never a cut. Now you can offer, you can get it yourself. Thirteen dollar value. Just try it. So stop messing around. Get started with Harry's today by claiming your free trial. Thirteen dollar value for free. Just cover shipping. Get your free trial, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, shave gel. It smells great, as I said. Go to Harry's.com/sports. All caps. S P O R T S. Right now. That's Harry's.com/sports. Harry's a new way to shave. Celeste, you went to the 2013 Boston Marathon, and why did you go? We were there because my sister, Carmen, had uh, taken up running, and she had trained to, and she, if, at first it wasn't um, a dream of hers to do the, you know, the Boston Marathon, and then uh, when she decided she wanted to do it, she trained so hard. I watched how hard she trained, so... I really, really uh, needed to be there for her. We're very close, and I was so proud of, you know, her her training and stuff that I needed to be there to watch her cross the finish line. I had never been to the marathon. Um, I work on Newberry Street, which is very close, right. and a lot of people, you know, all my friends around there couldn't believe that I had never gone. And did you run? Did no. you help her train any any interest in running yourself? No. Not necessarily the marathon, but were you a runner at all? No. And she wanted me to run with her. And actually, that was probably one of the first uh, dark humor jokes that we had at the hospital, just days after my <laughs> amputations, because uh, I always got terrible shin splints. Mm-hmm. So my, one of my first comments was, you know, I'm not going to get shin splints anymore. Maybe I could take up running. <laughs> I haven't, but um, uh, yeah, that we we've learned that dark humor helps a lot with this. <laughs> so you were at the finish line. We were tracking her all the way. I yes, assume. and yes. then you sort of got there. You didn't get there four hours before she did. You just got there around the time you thought. Correct. And Sydney, were you running? No, I was not. Um, I was a spectator. I was right beside my mother when it happened. Um, just like her, I was there to see my aunt, and uh, we had heard how 
hard she had worked, so we just wanted to support her and let her know that we were here for her, and we were so proud. And what happened? So we were with uh, other friends of ours, another couple, and their daughter and her friend also, and we made our way up to, we had had lunch. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, then we made our way up to Boylston Street, and my husband realized that we were behind the finish line. Right. So he said, Celeste, if you want to see her actually cross the finish line, we have to move. So he was like, you know, follow me. So he, uh, you know, just started walking, and we ended up in this uh, one area. We were right in front of Marathon Sports, and we were able to – it seemed like there was – a little bit of an opening in the crowd, you know, it's usually... Right, like, packed. Yeah, so uh, there was, um, so we stood there and we were, I was so excited and so nervous, I felt like my head was on a swivel because I was, I was so afraid to miss her crossing the line, you right. know, and um, it was, it was just a spectacular day, you know, I mean, the weather was gorgeous seeing all these people, you know, cheering and hearing people yelling, seeing these people coming across the finish line, you know, knowing how hard they had just run and um, servicemen coming across with, you know, full gear on Mm. and stuff. Like, it's just, it's so emotional. And uh, I guess just a couple minutes before the bombing, this... uh, this little crowd in front of us, their runner must have run by because we heard them cheer. And then they were like, let's go, you know, and they took off. So we kind of moved up a little bit. And um, then literally from one second to another, our world exploded. Um, there was just this huge bang. There was... Um, I just remember this black, heavy cloud. I remember sort of being tossed in the air. I actually think that I bounced off of bodies. I think I might have scratched someone, you know. Um, like, I think I tumbled. And um, This come from behind? It came from my right. I think behind and from my right. Uh, but... Um, so I, you know, ended up on the ground and I still couldn't see because, and I could barely breathe. It took me a minute to catch my, my breath. I remember debris just being all in my face and sort of spitting and, um, to just try and breathe. And the, probably the most disturbing memory that I have and the most eerie one is that at that time, like I just remember, um, both my eardrums were blown out. So it was, you know, that jolt, that blast, and then just continuous screaming and, um, you know, alarms going off everywhere. But, you know, I could hear, I can only hear it muted. You know, like as if you just come out of this really loud concert. Right. And so it was It was such a surreal, just strange kind of thing. And you definitely don't process right away 
what's happening, you know. You uh, Right, did you have any thoughts or just blank? I just remember just being like, what just happened? Yeah. What just happened, you know? And then um, as it, you know, I mean, in, in a matter of just seconds, you know, so many thoughts are flowing through your head and it's like, what just happened? And then no, no, and I could feel the pain in my legs. I couldn't sit up. And I just remember thinking, I just remember thinking, no, nope, nope, this didn't happen. This didn't happen. And um, Kevin immediately uh, had said, that was just a bomb. I think he said, I think he actually said the words, that was, we just had a terrorist attack. Hmm. And um, I remember trying to look down at my legs and... um, I just saw my foot at a weird angle. I couldn't, I couldn't like sit up all the way. And, uh, he was just, he was just beside me and he, um, he took off his belt. He tried to tie a tourniquet around my leg and, um, he got a belt from somebody passing by and tied my other leg off. And I just remember him putting pressure and him just saying, um, it's going to be okay. And I, I was just in so much pain. I remember I kept putting my arms to cover my eyes. Like, I was just, I don't know. I think when you're in that much pain, you're just inside yourself, just mm-hmm. trying to hold it together, you know? And in my head, all I, I just kept saying, no, 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 you know? And there was so much pain that I, I definitely remember at one point being like, I can't take this. I want to, I want to just die. And then, like a, not even a split second after that, I remember immediately, like my head just being like, no, no, like I'm not done, you know? Like, it was almost like I horrified myself with that thought. Do you remember the scene around you? Were there medical personnel by that time? Was it complete chaos? It was complete chaos. Um, I don't remember medical personnel. Um, like I said, I kept covering my eyes mm-hmm. and, um, but when I did look up, all I saw was just blood and like I said, people screaming and stuff. And at one point I said, he, he had tied the tourniquets and he was, he was putting pressure on my legs and it hurt so bad. Like I, I kind of wanted him to stop, but I knew I couldn't tell him to stop. And he, um, I remember him saying, like, in my head, because he was okay, uh, or, I, you know, I thought he was okay. I didn't think anything had happened to him. Um, I remember saying, is Sydney okay? Because in my head, I thought if he was okay, she was okay. And it had just happened to, not just me, but I thought it, nothing Did had happened to her. Did you see her? No. And um, she, I don't know how, but she was a little bit more to the left of me, but I had been literally hanging off her shoulder because she was taller than me at the time. Um, and, you know, I was trying to use her to boost myself up a little bit to see my sister. So I don't know how she ended up moving maybe a little bit more further to the left, but I'm so grateful that she did because somehow when the bomb exploded she was blown back and she kind of went further back I think and tried to walk to the side and she ended up falling um there used to be a black 
little fence around Marathon Sports. So she was, it was like she was around a corner from us. So we couldn't see her at all and she couldn't see us. And um, Kevin just laid down neck. He, he, when I said, is Sydney okay? He said, uh, I think she's with our friends. We were there with our friends, Ron and Karen. He said, I think she's with our friends. I think she's all right. So I was just like, okay. And then I just remember just thinking like, I just got to keep it together till I get to the hospital. They're going to put me out. They're going to fix my legs. And he literally lay down, you know, sat down beside me as much as he could while still applying the pressure. And I just remember him pushing the hair out of my face and telling me, you know, he was, he was like choked up, but him saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, um, then I just remember going to the, to the hospital. And, um, when we got there, when they moved me, I don't think I've ever screamed that Mm. loud. And uh, they were uh, cutting my clothes off me and um, ask. well, I I remember, too, in the medical tent, they they had cut some of my clothes away and they wrote something on my chest. I think it was like a number or something, like I I needed to be one of the first ones to leave. Mm. and then, like I said, when we got to the hospital, um, they kept asking me questions and asking me where Kevin was and if I was allergic to medication and, you know, all those questions that you get. And I think Kevin was outside trying to reach my son. So they kept telling me that my husband wasn't there. And I was like, I, I sort of got angry. I was like, he rode to the hospital in mm. the ambulance with me. He's there. Just find him. And I was sort of aggravated that, you know, I was, it, it took so much effort to speak because I was in so much pain. Um, and then uh, the other memory that I will never forget is just the doctor coming over with a clipboard and he just came by my side and he said, um, just very stoically, he said, um, we need you to sign this so we can amputate both your legs. Just... That was early in your time in the hospital? As soon as I got there. Right then? As soon as I got there. They were literally just cutting my clothes away, and he came over, and, I mean, they knew right away. And, um, you know, I just remember sort of blinking, like, he didn't just say that, you know, and kind of looking at him, like he was going to change what he was going to say or something. And I just remember looking at him and going, both? And he said, yes, as a matter of fact. Mm. And uh, I just went, I just said, okay. And I signed it because in my head, like I just, whatever was going to get the pain to stop. And, you know, somewhere in my brain, I knew that he wouldn't be saying this if it didn't need to happen. And I don't think I was fully comprehending what that meant, but. You know, he's just telling me this, and all I wanted them to do was just knock me out. And um, that was my last memory till I woke up. And you were there, and you got displaced when it happened? You weren't together? Right, so... Were you with the friends? uh, I was not. Um, I was standing right beside my mother. I was to her left. And as soon as the bombs went off, 
I had no idea what had happened. I thought it might have been a celebratory cannon or a firework that just was too close or something went wrong. I had no idea I was even hurt. Um, and I couldn't see anyone, just as my mother had said, the black smoke was just surrounding us and you couldn't see anything. So I immediately lost everyone. I had no idea who was around me. I could hear people, but I couldn't see anyone. I was just the muffled screams that I could hear. Uh, I immediately felt like half of my right foot was gone. And because I couldn't look down and see my foot, I was just perplexed and was trying to put weight on that foot. And I, I think eventually... I was putting too much pressure on my leg because I had, I had a hole blown through my foot, and that's what I was feeling. And I had a piece of the pressure cooker go into my my thigh, and it nicked my femoral artery, and I couldn't see any of that. So I was just trying to walk, and I made my way over to that fence around Marathon Sports, and I couldn't walk well, so I had grabbed onto it, and. I must have passed out because I don't remember laying down, but I do remember getting to that fence, holding onto it, and trying to put pressure on my foot. And then the next moment, I wake up and I'm on the ground and the back of my head hurts. So I think I had passed out, and I think pretty quickly I came to. And then there were men around me, um, a Marine and his friend, luckily a Marine, was there who had seen this kind of stuff so he knew what to do he saw me and he was grabbing shirts out of marathon sports and tying tourniquets and telling his friend to reach into my leg and pinch off my femoral artery and I had a man who was over by my side and his job was to keep me awake and to squeeze his hand as hard as I could and um, I I had no idea what had happened it hadn't occurred to me that there was a bomb or it was a terrorist attack. That thought never occurred to me. Um, I had no idea what happened to my parents or the friends that we were with. Mm. Um, at some point, I I actually thought that I was an orphan. Um, so I thought that they were gone and I was on my own and I... I was having a lot of difficulty speaking because it just, it felt so cold having the blood rush out of your body and bleeding out. So it was very hard for me to speak even just a whisper. It took so much effort and everyone's asking, what's your name? Who were you here with? And I, I was trying to tell them, I was here with my parents. I don't know if they're okay. And everyone's just telling me, like, hold on, you're okay. And I hear this police officer who came over and was helping put me onto uh, a stretcher or a board to bring me into the medical tent. I hear him say, like, expletives and just, this was, this was a bomb. And he... He was so worried. I remember him saying that he was worried that, like, something else was going to go off. And while they're moving me to the medical tent, I remember being terrified because I thought, 
why are we moving? We should just stay in this one spot because something already happened here. Like we could move and then walk into something Hmm. else. Um, But when they brought me to the medical tent, they started cutting off my clothes. Um, They strapped an oxygen mask to my face. Um, They were all so, so panicked. And I actually remember wanting to console them. Hmm. I mean, I'm still in a state of shock where I can't fully grasp what's happening. And I just want to console them and let them know, like, no, I'm fine. But um, they eventually, like, get an ambulance for me to go into. And I was the only person in that ambulance. They were trying to put as many people as they could into them. But for me, I remember them saying, like, no, she has to go. We can't wait for somebody else to put in there because she has to go right now or else we're going to lose her. And they were saying her eyes are going white, her lips are turning purple. Mm-hmm. And you heard that? Yeah. That was that was terrifying. And I definitely knew. I, I knew by that point what was happening in the ambulance. Um, How old were you? I was 17 at the time. I turned 18 in the hospital. Um, it happened April 15th, and my birthday was April 23rd. Um, in the in the ambulance, they were speeding off, and there was some car that cut off the ambulance. So they braked so hard, and I'm in this stretcher, and I'm strapped in very tightly, and I have tourniquets. And I was jostled and thrown so hard that I just felt the blood rush out of my leg in that moment. The EMG in the back was thrown to the front of the ambulance with me, and... I remember thinking then that this is it. Like, I'm, I'm not going to make it. And to be completely honest, it was a really, really calm moment for me. Mm. Just kind of coming to terms with, with, with death and just thinking, like, this is, this is what my life was and just this is my time. And then getting to the hospital... Uh, when they brought me into that first room uh, where they're tying more tourniquets, putting more pressure, um, it was so hard for me to speak. So I tried to scream, and I'm not even sure if any sound came out. It was just so, so painful. And I remember asking them, when are you going to put me out? Because I I knew, like, well, I'm not dead yet, so when are they going to stop the pain? And they were all trying to ask me uh, for names, numbers, what's my name, who was I with. And I just was having so much trouble telling them who I was. And they got my name wrong. They thought my name was Snyder. And I was trying to tell them that my parents were there and I don't know if they're even alive. And I was giving them my mom's number and... I didn't know my brother's number off the top of my head, and he wasn't there that day, so I knew that he was fine. But I was so scared because I couldn't remember his number, and I thought that he was all I had left. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they told me that they were going to, they were going to knock me out soon. And I remember this anesthesiologist coming over to me, 
He got very close to my face. I think he could tell how hard I was struggling to talk. And I was able to tell him my mother and my father's name. And I gave him my mother's cell phone number. And he actually wrote it down on his pants because he didn't have a paper with him. And to me, that just showed, like, how desperate the situation was. It's not like a doctor came in and asked me, so is there a contact that you can give us so that we can we can let them know if you're okay? And I mean, the, the man was so desperate and so panicked, he was writing on his pants. Hmm. Like, if, if it's irrational and situation that's okay, they're going to have a piece of paper. And I just remember being so, so afraid. And then they're wheeling me into the other room to go into surgery. And uh, I don't think they had given me anything by that point, but I, um, I slipped out of consciousness. And I guess I was in surgery for, for quite a while, um, several hours, in fact. Um, by the time I came to, I was intubated, so I had a tube in my throat and I couldn't speak. And to my surprise, my father was in the room with me. And I wanted to ask him a question. I had so many questions. So I motioned for a piece of paper and a pen or pencil. And he brought me one. And I was able to try and write down and ask what happened. Is mom okay? And he had told me that she lost her legs and that it was a bomb. And he, I remember him putting his forehead to mine and we cried. Um, and it was just, it was so heartbreaking because I, I wanted to cry so hard and just hug my dad, but I was so hurt I couldn't. And I fell back asleep and the next time I woke up, there was a nurse that came into the room and she was explaining to me that my mother was in the hospital and they wanted us to recover together. So they were going to bring her into my room. And she started to say that she just wanted to prepare me. She didn't want me to panic because my mom's a little different. And she told me, your mother doesn't have her legs. They had to be amputated. We couldn't save them. And I remember thinking and telling her, I don't care. I just want my mom. Like, she's still my mother. And they brought her in shortly after. And we cried and hugged each other. And it was just, it really made a difference in our recovery, having each other in the yeah. same room. And I think we were so, so fortunate to be able to be at the same hospital. Like so many other families were right. spread apart at different parts of the city. And we were lucky enough to be at the same hospital. And you both have used this tragedy for the best uh, in helping others. And that's really sort of a bright light that's come out of this. And I know it's so hard to talk about what you just did talk about. I really appreciate it. But in terms of what you've done since 
and I'm, you know, I want to hear about the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Uh, it's just um, heartwarming. Sure. Um, right from the very beginning, um, for me, my first, you know, we had so many people come and see us, and sure. uh, the, my first uh, glimmer of hope or whatever, if you will, was when the Marines came to see us. And um, these uh, two in particular, Gabe and Cam, they were both amputees. And I couldn't tell when they walked in uh, because of the way that the room was and stuff that they were amputees. And Gabe came right over to the bed and said, um, you know, just was explaining to me, I'm just like you. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm a double amputee. And I'm like, what? And so, and he's one above the knee, one below, just like me. And uh, so anyway, their visit was, you know, because he was there to say, he said, you know, I am here to let you know that, you know, this is the worst part, but your life is not over and you're, you're going to recover from this. You're going to get legs and you're going to be able to live a full life and, you know, so that, like I said, that was the first, like, my gosh, maybe, maybe I will have a life after this, you know, cause I was just thinking right. I was done, you know? Um, and, uh, that visit was so pivotal for my mental health, you know? And then, um, how soon was that visit? days after mm -hmm. I believe um I believe it was like so the marathon was Monday I believe it was like th maybe Thursday or Friday I, I, don't, I don't really remember but it was just days within right. days and um then uh you know there was different things throughout our hospital stay that I mean, on one hand, it was exhausting because there were so many people. There was just a line of people coming into our room all the time. So, I mean, on one hand, it was it was fantastic because all this love and support was coming to us. But on the other hand, it was exhausting. Like, I remember one day, Sydney crying, and she, I was like, what, what's, what's the matter? And she looked at me, and she was like, can we just have a day that nobody comes in here? She's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm so tired. I can't take it anymore, you know? And I, I think we did that. I don't even really remember. But um, uh, then we, we went to uh, the rehab center together, Spalding Rehab. And we were in adjoining rooms. And we did our physical therapy and all that. Uh she got released before I did, and that was really uh, bittersweet, you know? Like, on right. one hand, I was so glad that she was going to be able to go home, but on the other hand, my, you know, she wasn't going to be right there. Right. My, my little my little girl, like, I'm, I, I was staying alone now, although I wasn't. I mean, everybody was coming to see me, but... Um, so the day that she left was really, really hard, but I didn't stay too much longer after that. And then we 
were recovering at home. And while I was in the hospital, uh, one of the visitors was a guy, Steve Chamberlain, who started this charity, 50 Legs. He's an amputee himself, and he helps people get legs that don't have the means, or um, he part- he's partnered with this fantastic prosthetist in Orlando who is an innovator in the prosthetic industry. He has he works with the military very closely, and he's developed... Um, he helped develop this leg that I have, and I have an X3. He has patents. He's developed liners. He made the feet that I have that, as a double amputee, allow me to stand very right. strongly and um, not wobbly on my feet. And I didn't get those right away. Uh, but I left the hospital going into rehab thinking that when I was done with my rehab, you know, I was told that I was going to rehab to learn how to um, uh, transfer safely, and then I was going to go home and heal. Right. And that was going to be the hardest thing is just waiting to heal enough so that I could get my prosthetics, be fitted for my prosthetics. And as soon as I got to um, Spalding and told the head doctor that, uh, you know, what my plans were, he was, he was like, you, you can't do that. Like, what do you mean I can't do that? And he said, well, you know, you're a brand new amputee. Your limbs are going to change. You can't go all the way to Florida to get a leg. That's ridiculous. You have to stay local. You have to, you know, you're going to be seeing this person, you know, for the rest of your life. You have to be, be close because your limb can change dramatically and you can't be, you know, flying off to Florida a lot. And, um, of course, what he said made sense. Right. Um, but uh, I was still kind of stuck on, I wanted to go there, you know. And I remember having a family meeting with him. And they were kind of pushing us to go to this one particular prosthetic company. And I remember the, the family meeting was my sister, my in-laws and everything. And I asked him, I said, what makes this place so special because I had heard that one of I, I kept myself kind of isolated because I was just in such a bad emotional place right. like I I that I kept my door shut not necessarily keep people out but just because the noise from the hallway always bugged me um, so I wasn't the people everybody else besides you know Jeff Bowman was the other double amputee everybody else was single amputees and um I don't know if they were dealing with things better or whatever, but I just, I remember hearing that one of the women was sort of shopping for prostatists. And I remember thinking, how is she doing that? You know, yeah. like, like how, where is she getting the energy for that? And how do you even go about that? Like right. every, everything just seemed so overwhelming and impossible to me. Um, so I was just relying on this person who I thought was an expert in you know, his field. And, um, at that family meeting, I was like, you know, why, like I said, why should I go to this place? And he actually said to me, um, if he said, let me put it to you this way. He said, if my, I think he said daughter, um, if somebody in my family, my daughter was an amputee, this is where I would send them. So to me, what, better endorsement can you get than that you right. know 
So I said, okay. And I put my trust in them and um, come to find out. I, in a way, um, I look at it two ways. I get, on one hand, I get very, very angry because that place gave me the worst set of prosthetics, the most outdated prosthetics. An amputee actually came up to me and said, I had those prosthetics in 1975. Yeah. What are you doing with those legs? And I was just like, what? This was the place that he said, if I had a daughter. Yep. Yep. Okay. And um, one of my last fittings before I actually was able to get my legs, the prosthetist, the owner, one of the owners of the company, um, he was fitting or giving Jeff his legs the next day. And Jeff is both above the knee. I'm one above and one below. So you have to have a microprocessor knee. Um, so he had a different leg than this, but very, very similar. So the prosthetist said, um, I think he thought that this would, I don't know what he thought actually, because he said, um, Jeff's coming in tomorrow to get his legs. You want to see his leg? And I'm thinking, whatever, sure, fine. And he brought out this, you know, shiny, state-of-the-art machinery, you know, that looked nothing like my jacked-up Barbie doll leg <laughs> with the foam around the ankle and the foam around the calf with the granny knee-high nylon pulled up to the top to, I think in his mind, he thought it was going to comfort me to make it look more like a real leg when in fact it looked utterly ridiculous mm -hmm. and he walked over with this leg and I just remember looking at the leg and I went, I said, why can't I have a leg like that? And to this day, <laughs> my blood still boils when mm. I think he, so his answer to me was, that's because you're a woman. Mm. Feel how heavy this leg is. He said, um, <clears throat> you're going to work up to this leg. But you have to start out with um, the basic one because um, you just—it's too heavy for you right now. Which is the exact opposite thinking of probably most prosthetists. I would hope, definitely the prosthetists that I go to now. Um, a new amputee has to have or should have the best, right. most newest technology right. because you're only gonna fall, possibly hurt yourself worse with the old technology, learn bad habits. It, it's just, it's just bad. So I, um, you know, didn't know what to say. Just, just was like, okay. I mean, I'm, you know, on heavy medication. If I was Celeste today, he would have eaten that leg. Yeah. Um, but at the time, this is the expert telling me, what I need and I'm just, you know, this beaten down, broken person that's just like, okay. Right. And so I believe it was the next day or a couple of days after I got readmitted to Spalding. And for that week I was practicing on those legs. It would take me so long to put them on. Um, it was a different system that I'm using now. It's a pin system. There's actually nothing wrong with the pin system. It's, it's an older system, but it's, it's still good. But um, the way that these legs worked 
there were days when it took me, and I'm not exaggerating, maybe 20 minutes to snap into the leg and I had to carry a coin around with me because the way that I knew that I was clicked in, I couldn't hear any because my ears were blown out. You know, Mm -hmm. I couldn't hear the click. So if I thought it was um, engaged, I would stick the quarter or whatever. There was a dial on the outside and I would stick the quarter on the outside and start to turn it like a screwdriver, Mm -hmm. you know, and if it started to pull my leg in, then I knew that I was engaged and I could uh, crank myself in and I was, I was set. And, um, I could through that whole week, I did fall a couple of times and, um, which made me very discouraged and very just pissed off because they had made me wear this belt or something saying that I was like a high risk or I just remember being so angry. Like, um, I don't know, like I had failed or something Mm. and I couldn't walk without a walker. And when I walked with the walker, my hands would shake because I was using my whole upper body to just kind of try and walk and standing still, just standing up. I could probably balance for like five, six, seven seconds. That's it. Maybe 10. Um, And I just knew that at the end of that week, I was literally at the end of my rope, if you will. And we were told or asked at the, uh, at the facility, they told us that the um, prosthetic association was uh, uh, paying for any any of the amputees from the Boston Marathon bombing. The orthotic prosthetic and orthotic convention was being held in Orlando, Florida that year, so they were going to pay for any of us to go, and they were encouraging us to go. And I remember the doctor saying, "You know, what better field trip?" But what better way to kind of see how you do than with, you know, your doctors and your physical therapists and stuff to, t- to get it on an airplane, you know? Right. And all I knew, all that was in my head was that this other prosthetist that Steve wanted me to see, 50 Legs wanted me to see, was in Orlando. Right. So I immediately called him and I said, please tell me that Stan Patterson is going to be there. And he said yes, definitely. My God, you know, like he, he just, I would call him crying, you know, and he was just like, get, just get here. So, um, we, we went there and the first morning, that's when that guy said to me, I had those legs in 1975. What are you doing with those legs? We made it to just, we just made it to Stan's booth and, um, we, I drew a crowd people. There was no one there that had legs like mine. No one. Really? And uh, to Stan's credit, he is such a professional. <laughs> and he uh, asked me questions about why I got these particular legs and everything. And he had me take them off. And, you know, he looked at them and everything. And then when he watched me struggle putting them on and everything, he was just, he just, and when I told him what I was told why I couldn't have the microprocessor knee, he, I remember he just kind of put his head down and just kind of shook it. And then very professionally, that's what I love about him. He was just, he said, well, you know what? That's not our philosophy. He said, we have a different philosophy here. And he said, 
I'd love for you to come in and I'd love to make you a set of legs. And um, I would have extended our stay, but Sydney needed surgery and we were going to have to be in Florida for 10 days to go through the whole process. So uh, we decided that, you know, when she was well enough to fly, because I couldn't, I wasn't going to not be there for her surgery. Um, when, she, when she was well enough to fly, the whole family was going to go to Orlando and I was going to get fitted for these legs. So um, that's, that's what we did. And that completely changed my life by the second day that we were there. I was walking um, without, I was walking on my own around the facility, mm. on my own. With the new legs. With the new legs. So since then, I've been an advocate for, I basically feel like I work for 50 legs. I try and help them raise money because I see they're a very small charity, but I see how important it is. So many people, so many people have contacted me about that have bad prosthetics. Um, they've been told, you know, they, they tell me they're in pain. And I say, well, did you, did you tell your prosthetist? Yeah, they said that's the best they can do. Um, or, you know, I have to just live with the pain. You have no idea how many people have told me that. And so we've sent as many people as we can to um, Orlando and I'm trying desperately to find someone around here. I know that Stan is not the only prosthetist and I know how great he is, but I know there's got to be other brilliant prosthetists and people who care just as much as he does. And I'm looking for those prosthetists because like, like I said, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to pay it forward. I've seen, I've, I've been there. I've had those legs, those terrible legs. I've seen people in terrible legs like that, that are in pain, that have blisters, that can't hold down a job, kids that can't play sports. And there's no need for that in this day and age. There's none. And it makes me all fired up to think about it. Yeah. So um, I've made it, that's kind of my, um, one of my, uh, what I do now, part of what I work on is trying to raise money for 50 legs. And um, I've just started trying to get in touch with different prosthetists in the area to see if they'd be open to, well, first of all, to see how they are. And um, the few that I have been in contact with have been really disappointing. Um, and it really disappoints me because living in Boston, we have the best hospitals. People come from around the world to go to our hospitals right. and prosthetic wise, um, there's gotta be some and I just can't wait to find them. I just haven't found them yet. You know, great prosthetists in the area. And did the, the connection to Orlando lead you to after that shooting, uh, at the nightclub? So, um, no, actually, uh, we, that was completely different and okay. just, um, a coincidence uh, we, a lot of the survivors, we've become very, very close. It's like a little family, amputees and other people that were, that were hurt. Sure. Um, both. And one of the, uh, people that was hurt 
Dave Fortier, he started this um, uh, Sydney, I don't, it's not a club, but like he, he, when we all got together, one common thing that all the uh, survivors would say is that how do we thank all the people that helped us? Right. And so he put this trek together. Um, he div- he made this organization called One World Strong, and the trek was supposed to be symbolic, like to stop in different cities, sort oh, of okay. across the country, um, maybe to places that if any of us had a special connection to, we could go to that place and maybe stop and talk to a classroom or um, visit someone or something like that. And he did this with his own money that he got from speaking engagements. Um, but it was that important to him. And it it started off really small and then Semper Fi got involved and they partnered with him. Um, and it's in its infancy, but it's, but it is growing. And then when that happened in Orlando, the track was stopped. Well, first, actually, we went to the White House before then, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the White House heard about what we were doing mm-hmm. and um, that administration. Of course, the First Lady, one of her big things was movement. Right. And that was part of our thing with One World Strong was that, you know, to get through an adversity and stuff doesn't, you don't have to be a runner, but, you know, to, to continue to move, whether it's walking or, you know, whatever, to continue to move, to keep yourself going, to get through your adversity. Right. Um, so when they heard about that, they invited us to the White House. And um, so that was pretty exciting to, to be able to go there and kind of, I had um, issues with or my passions, passionate subjects were about service dog ignorance, um, service dog access, you know, the laws with service dogs, both Sydney and I have service dogs and people with invisible disabilities that -hmm. have service dogs, how they are just basically tortured. I've seen Sydney get kicked out of a restaurant, get yelled at, um, because they don't believe her because just looking at her, she doesn't, no one usually questions me because they just look down at my legs. So it's, it's sort of trying to educate the public about the need for service dogs. And, um, a big thing is post-traumatic stress and how little people really understand about how debilitating and how serious it actually is and how, a service dog for someone with post-traumatic stress is absolutely their lifeline. And they are, it amazes me that there's even a debate because there was just a debate at the white house. I was going to go back for it, but, um, they ended up wrapping up, um, and not even, uh, coming to a decision on the issue because the panel that they had put together could not come to a decision of whether or not um, someone with post-traumatic stress should be, their service dog should be classified as a therapy dog or if post-traumatic stress was serious enough to be considered with like my issue, mobility or mm-hmm. seizures or a blind person or something like that. 
And I cannot believe, it blows my mind, that they did not <clears throat> understand. Clearly, none of these people suffered from post-traumatic stress. Um, I tried to explain to them that if I was, if you took my dog away from me and I was going on a trip, say I was going to travel, um, and I couldn't bring my dog with me, I could go to the airport, request a wheelchair. The people at the airport could take me to my plane, take me directly onto my plane, get me to my seat, mm -hmm. help me while I'm on the airplane. When I reach my destination, get me off the airplane, put me in a wheelchair, take me out, get me a cab, get me to my car, whatever is happening, you know. Um, I could be helped the right. whole entire way. So it's not dismissing my service dog. I still definitely need him. But just think of that scenario, right? Right. And then somebody with post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic stress is not somebody being nervous or just being afraid to fly or something like that. It is serious. My daughter almost committed suicide because of post-traumatic stress and the complications of it. And I believe with every fiber of my being that her service dog saved her life. Mm. And as well as her will, you know, I mean, thank God she chose to, but I believe that her dog saved her life. And so put some, take someone like that, put them on an airplane. Right. They get triggered. They get triggered for whatever reason, smell, uh, anything, a noise. Sure. And you've taken away their lifeline. You've taken away their comfort. What, what, you know, snaps them out of this other, you know, nightmare that they go into. And more and more people have to understand that that is, you know, it's too, so a lot of people, the, I think the biggest complaint is so many people try and get away. You can buy a service vest online. Right. And they try and get away with, they, they pretend that it's a service dog. Right. They abuse it. They right. abuse it. Right. So it makes it much harder for people who absolutely need it to have the, especially someone that doesn't look like they have a disability. Right. That's what I mean about the invisible disabilities, right? right? Um, but as far as I'm concerned, you're going to have people like that and you're going to have to deal with that. The way that people are protected, businesses and stuff are protected, is that if you have somebody taking a service dog on board a plane in a restaurant, wherever, and that dog starts to misbehave, cause problems, you know, growl or whatever, you can kick that dog out, that person out with the dog because they're not behaving like a service dog. Right. Just as you can an unruly patron. Right. You know, someone's drunk or something, you can absolutely kick them out. So... Um, are people going to slide through the cracks? Sure. They might have a real well-behaved dog that might behave okay or whatever. But it, those instances, to me, are less important than um, the rights of the people that need the service dog for post-traumatic stress. Right. That comes first. Right. Sydney, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost four years. Yeah, um, it's almost four years, and I'm I'm doing I'm doing well. Um, definitely, still struggle every now and again. Um, it's hard to figure out when exactly 
something's going to trigger you. Right. Um, things could be going perfectly fine, and then the next moment you hear something that's a little too loud, and you jump, and you don't even realize that it's triggered you until you have tears streaming down your face. But um, I now have the tools to uh, get myself kind of... Um, I now have the tools to talk myself down from those situations. I'm able to kind of go inside myself and ask if I'm okay and where am I? Am I safe? Am I back at the bombing? No, I'm not. I'm okay. And I, I'm getting pretty good at kind of diffusing my own situation and um, not having somebody always coming to comfort me. I'm starting to get more independent as far as that goes like my service dog Coda he's absolutely my lifeline I don't know what I would do without him um, but I'm actually becoming a little bit more independent from him I definitely still need him I don't think PTSD is ever going to be something that I don't suffer from but I think I'll definitely have moments where it's not anywhere near as severe as it used to be but um Coda is absolutely there for those moments when it's really tough. He can sense when I'm about to have a meltdown before I do. So he'll come over to me and he'll like paw at my leg to get my attention. And if I'm crying, I'll get down to his level and he starts to lick my face. And then like I'll just kind of hug him and he'll start licking my ear and kind of like nibbling it, trying to get me to laugh. And once I laugh, I swear to God, he sits, lays down as if, like, he thinks, okay, my job is done. You're good. She's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great. It's amazing to see. It really sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. he is. He's super empathetic. Um, I've been in treatment for an eating disorder, and I was just in a room full of other people with uh, many things going on in their lives. Right. So it was very, very emotional. And he's so empathetic that he would actually... When I was okay, of course, he would go over to other people in, in the group, and if they were crying, he'd sit next to them and put his head on their lap, and he would pet him, and it was it was great. He was kind of like the, the mascot, if you will. <laughs> you guys have been great. Thank you for sharing your stories. Anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, as you can tell, I could talk forever, <laughs> and there's many things that I uh, champion and want to to right. talk about, you know, but, um, you know, the main things are getting better prosthetics for everyone across the board. You know, it shouldn't matter that I got blown up by a bomb, so right. I get the best prosthetic and somebody get, that gets hit by a car gets a crappy one or, or whatever. Um, although I didn't immediately get the best prosthetic. Um, right. and, uh, about service dogs and people's awareness of their importance and uh, the laws pertaining to them and airline travel in particular. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, so and the 50legs.com, is that the, if you want to... It's 50legs.org. .org. And if anybody wants to um, donate to that just uh, or look up and see the work that they do, it's 50legs.org. Sure. And um, you can see... The, the great thing about them, because of the partnership that they have with the prosthetic company there in Orlando, the reason why, as because of Stan, 
um, why this relationship is so unique is not just because Stan is so brilliant and his team is so fantastic, but um, anybody that 50 Legs sends there, the press, he, Stan um, gives them the prosthetics, sells 50 Legs the prosthetics um, at cost. So a lot of prosthetic companies... Marka. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in their defense... I mean, they have to make some money, right? So they might not be able to do that. Um, but it's such a unique situation, and I'm just trying to. It's, and I, I know it's going to be a struggle, but I'm determined to. We need corporate sponsors because the most money I think that Fifty Legs has ever raised is because every year we, since the bombing, we've done a chat. Um, when it's the Boston Marathon, we have runners that run 450 legs. Right. So last year, I believe we raised $130,000. That was gone before, um, you know, it practically got into our hands because there's a waiting list right. for people with legs. And other charities that have corporate sponsors, they, have, they get millions of dollars. We could help so many people if a big company or corporation would like to back, you know, 50 legs. So if anybody out there is listening and, you know, has, has the means, wants the tax write off and wants to do something fantastic to change lives, uh, I encourage you to look at 50 legs.org. Look at the videos of the kids, the veterans, you know, young, old, everybody, people who have never walked, never walked Mm -hmm. and get legs and walk. Um, and you can look at prosthetic and orthotic associates. You can look at their YouTube videos and see the, um, you can see my videos of my first walking, my first yeah. running and everything. Um, and I mean, the proof is right there. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I have a friend who's there now, a kid that I've been helping and, um, he went from going to a prosthetic company in the area and having a leg that, you know, he could was in pain all the time. And uh, now he's he's been there a couple of days and he's walking, still in his check socket, but walking, his mom says, pain-free. That's great. And here they wanted to operate on him again. So um, it's just a big difference. And I just encourage people to, to, to look at that and help in any way that they can. Celeste, Sydney, thanks so much. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.